Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music as we kick off a brand new week. It would be the first full week of the month of August. We are already in month eight and more importantly Tomorrow is election day across Less than the twenty four hours away. <laughs> what in the world are we gonna do when it's over? Ah well, there's always <laughs> national politics and then there probably gonna be at least one runoff. Uh yeah. You think so? Oh yeah. I mean with that many elections going on across the Magnolia State, there's gotta be at least one. Okay. Well, we will stay tuned. Laser focus in on it. (laughs) You're right. We'll stay tuned for that for sure. In the meantime, we're going to the polls tomorrow. Don't forget, if you would like to see your ballot or polling location, it's my election day. The link at the Secretary of State's website. Tell us how we get there, Rhino. You go to the splash page, and then uh, you can navigate to there how you do that. Yeah, when you go to the the Secretary of State's website, which is sos.ms.gov, you'll come up to the page full of all kind of stuff you can use. But what you're looking for is at the top. It's a little thing called Y'all Vote. When you click on that, it'll take you to a page with three dark blue columns with red buttons. You're looking for the middle column, the bottom red button that says My Election Day. There you go. Now, I have, uh, I've made a recommendation to the Secretary to place a link on the splash page to go directly to there so that you don't have to go through a couple of extra clicks. And he said, you know, that's a good idea. I wonder why we don't already have that. So, <laughs> Secretary of State Michael Watson. Full disclosure, by the way, folks, my daughter works for the Secretary of State. She changed careers about uh, six weeks ago. And she informed me, by the way, over the weekend, she's headed to Lauderdale County tomorrow as a poll watcher. And she has committed to providing text updates from Lauderdale County. How about that? Also, Rob Pillow, he works for the Secretary of State. He, of course, formerly was a communications director for Congressman Michael Guest. He's policy now at Secretary of State's office, I think he's headed to your home in Tupelo 
tomorrow, and he also committed to sending text updates. So we're going to get live updates from uh, at least two of the counties where folks are going to the ballot box. And then folks on our text line, by the way, that's 601-879-4395. We'd encourage you as well. Send us info as you make your way to the polls. We would uh, certainly love to see that and share that, especially anything that is a bit unusual in terms of the turnout. So that's always the big question. I don't we ex- usually get texts like, I'm voter number so-and-so, and it took me this long to get in and out. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's useful information, I would say. I have seen some people, however, in social media say that, um, at least contend, that the election is going to be rigged. What the heck does that mean? Somebody tell me. we got to get off of this rig kick. So... Didn't we have somebody tell us a couple weeks ago that their mark sense ballot, that's how we vote in Mississippi, paper ballots, mark sense, and then they're scanned. Like by they were sc- saying they used a voting machine. No, they said the machine changed it, but they didn't say it was a voting machine, remember? They didn't clarify that. It would be a mark sense that I recall that the, when their ballot was scanned, is my understanding of what they were describing. So you know how that works. You fill in the ovals. Isn't it ovals on our ballot? Isn't that right? That you Ovals or arrows. Is it arrows? Okay. Something you mark, and then optical yeah, scanners. Yeah, you fill out the whole thing. Yeah. It's like taking a Scantron test back in school. That's right. And optical scanning technology has been around for decades, by the way. That's nothing new. And in fact, when I was uh, a young college student, that's the way we... Uh, Entered our classes. That's the way you would you would do that. Mark sense. It actually, that happened at some point while I was in school. Originally, it was cards for the old card reader mainframes. You pick a card, and literally they would have boxes. You go to the Coliseum, and you would find the the class you were looking for. Somebody would be at a table, and they would have boxes of all the cards with the sections for that class. And, and you tried to get one of those cards, if that was a class you wanted, the time and so forth, and the instructor. And once those cards were out, that's it. And you would take your stack of cards and go scan it into the card scanner, reader, card readers, what they're called, actually. And that would upload it to the mainframe. Boom, there's your schedule. And when they came out with the systems that were able to use optical scanners, which was much more efficient, we started doing that. So you'd take a form and fill out your classes with an optical scanner, and boom, it it would uh, you'd put those in there. Actually, you stood in line, and there were people that, uh, that would help you. They had the scanners. They'd scan it. It'd come up, and then it'd tell you, sorry, that one's closed, and you start making choices there. That's the way that worked. we come a long way since then, I would say, digital technology, but that's how... We vote. We have paper. We have the benefit of paper and some automation, and that we have the paper ballots, which are scanned by the optical scanners. I have a high degree of confidence that the optical scanners will scan your ballot correctly. That, that your vote will be accurately reflected. I do not think optical scanners 
would change your vote. I mean, they don't. That's software that's embedded in the scanners. It doesn't even exist to do that. It just focuses on scanning where the paper's marked. So, but go to the polls tomorrow and vote. The in-person absentee voting ended this past Saturday, right? Yep. Close of business Saturday. So here we go. We're going to the polls tomorrow to cast our ballots in the great state of Mississippi. Now, some big news over the weekend you probably heard on our news. I heard Kelly Bennett, multimedia journalist for Super Talk News, discussing Mayor Mary Hawkins Butler of the, uh, the great city of Madison, Mississippi. She went to the air this, uh, this weekend and published a video where she is announcing her endorsement for Chris McDaniel, for lieutenant governor. It's, um, I don't know that it was unexpected, honestly, given the encounter last week at the Madison County Political Luncheons called Grip and Grin at Mama Hamill's restaurant in in Madison County. A large gathering there. Lieutenant uh, Governor Delbert Hoseman was scheduled to attend, ended up not, instead went to the groundbreaking ceremony for Steel Dynamics up in the Golden Triangle. The, I think it's described as not the largest, one of the largest economic development projects in our history. Big deal. Remember, they called a special session last year to work out the details, I think, of some incentives, as I recall. But challenger Chris McDaniel did attend, and you've probably seen the video. It's gone somewhat viral where the mayor of Madison approached the podium where Mr. McDaniel was speaking to the crowd, some 240 in, in, in attendance, I'm told, and pinned him down on this rumor going around about potential judicial redistricting in Madison County. So presently, Madison County is combined with Rankin County as a judicial district, and there's been some rumors going around. There's just rumors at this point. I don't have any. I've seen no empirical evidence suggesting that the lieutenant governor supports the idea of separating the present district and combining Madison County with Holmes and Yazoo counties, as opposed to the present situation which has Madison and Rankin combined into one judicial district. So that caught the attention of the mayor. She approached uh, Chris McDaniel, who said, I would not support such a move. I would always be on the side of keeping the district as it is, Rankin and Madison combined. And so as a result, the mayor of Madison, Mary Hawkins Butler, says, I'm supporting Chris McDaniel. Interesting news there. We're coming right back with a whole lot more. Stay with us on Middays. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Pick me up, love. Pick me up. 
Back in the Element Well studio. Yeah, Stephen the Delta, that's right, punch cards. The old punch cards, by the way, were 40 columns. You know, in a character-based screen, it's 80 columns. It's weird. But 40 was the, uh, the most you could stick on the card and of that size and, and I think just make efficient card readers double that size. It had been hard to handle, you know, and carry. But literally remember in my early computer programming <laughs> classes, which honestly got me interested in technology, was that one class, but you'd carry around your deck. Lord help you if you dropped it and got them out of order because your <laughs> program's hosed at that point. <laughs> Oh, man, and you you know, put them in the card reader, and it'd suck it up, and you'd wait for your program to compile, and about two hours later, it'd spit out the results and say, nah, you got errors, and you have to go figure that out. It was grossly inefficient, shall we say. But we come a long way. Um, let's see. I don't have a dog in this race, but what about the lieutenant governor in the state retirement? Just asking is the lieutenant governor trying to privatize it? Don't know anything I was just asking about it, says Tim and McGee. Tim, you know, we've brought up the subject of PERS, the Public Employees Retirement System at the state, for all public sector employees in Mississippi, numerous times on the program. I don't apologize for that. It's a huge deal. It, uh, it needs to be addressed. The problem is not going away. It's the same thing at the federal level with Social Security and Medicare. Problem's not going to just fix itself on its own. And any discussion of it just draws the ire. I mean, it causes people to get apoplectic. But it, it's like it's kind of like if you think about your life. I got all these issues I'm dealing with in my life. And often the most critical, the most difficult, you just set aside. I'll deal with that later. And that's kind of where we are. And you keep kicking it down the road, as they say, unless it gets to a, a point or, or until it gets to a point of such urgency that if you don't solve it, your life is hosed. That's kind of where we are. We're approaching that point. I'm certainly not suggesting PERS can't meet its obligations next year. Please don't, don't infer from our analysis here that we're promoting that idea. That's not true. All we're saying is, is that the longer you keep pushing it out, the more difficult it is to solve the problem. And the same is true with Social Security and Medicare. And we keep kicking the old can down the road. So, no, Tim, I've not heard either candidate make any, I would say, Rhino, definitive pronouncements about what to do with purse. When I've asked them, it's sort of been, yeah, I hear you. we got to look at that. In general, I mean, I'm characterizing it, I guess, in very high-level general terms, but would you agree that's been, I mean, nobody said, yeah, we need to do this, 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 this. I haven't heard that. No. Yeah. Nor any other candidates. And you won't find that on any candidate's push card. 
You won't find six pers. You won't find that on there. You'll hear that they're, let's see, you're pro-life, you're pro-Second Amendment, you're Christian conservative, you're for less government, I support law enforcement. You could take any candidate's bullet point list in the Republican primary and overlay it or put it side by side with any other. They all say the same thing. Do they not? Every one of them say the same thing. Nine out of ten, yeah. That is not differentiating yourself. The biggest differentiator I've seen in any election across the Magnolia State is one guy's nickname that he's ran with. (laughs) Well, you know, that sort of stuff works from the old name ID category, does it not? That's in a constable race. (laughs) Right, exactly. That absolutely works. That's right here in Madison County, I think you're talking about. So... But that so Tim, I haven't heard anything, and uh, we're going to keep harping on this matter because it it is an important one, as we have shared. The contribution rate for employers that would be all public sector employers in the state of Mississippi, be it municipalities, counties, state agencies, or twenty five thousand, I believe, state employees. The contribution rate will increase by 5% July 1st, 2024. That is in an effort to get more money into the fund to make it more solvent, but it falls short of the reforms that are necessary to sustain it for the long term. Sustain purse. And by the way, Mississippi is not unique. It's a problem in every state. Many counties and cities, larger in scope across the country, same deal. Pension plans, upside down. Because defined benefit plans where you receive benefits, no matter how much you paid in, you're getting benefits out until you pass away. That just doesn't work anymore. Not given the length of time we live. Many people now enjoy retirement for more years than their working years. So you can just kind of Logic yourself through the math there and say, that probably doesn't work. Contribute for 25 and retire for 30. Yeah, that probably doesn't work. Gene and Mendenhall on the ceasefire text line gave us something else to add to the list of, that's on every single push card. <laughs> it says, and why do candidates feel the need to show me pictures of their families on their mail flyers I get every day? There's always going to be a picture of them with the family. Yeah, of course. And the dog. Oh, yeah. Very important. Well, it's a member of the family. <laughs> You know, and I've said this before, I believe people vote emotion, and one of those emotions is is certainly is physical image. People just do. There's no doubt about that. And so, and the other thing you notice is technology is pretty good these days to take any photo, any video, and really make it high quality. I mean, sort of project that feel good. And I don't blame the candidates whatsoever for doing that. Um, You're accusing candidates of a little airbrushing? Nah. <laughs> little digital liposuction? You know, seriously, though, the deep fake stuff is going to come into play, I guarantee you, in the 2024 presidential election. Oh, yeah. It's currently being used for laughs. almost said something else. Hmm. Something that has, involves giggles and something else. But it's being used for entertainment at this point online. But, yeah, there's definitely a dirty angle that will more than likely be taken between now and then. I think that's right. 
Uh, you're going to see deep fake use to portray candidates in expose-type video that will not reflect positively on them. And you know what? As well as you know this, there are a lot of people who will see that and say, oh my gosh, right? They will not know this is deep fake, even if it comes out afterwards. Yeah, that's really inaccurate. Untruthful. And I think, I hate to say this, but I think that's going to break down along generational lines. Because there's a lot of people in the younger generation that look at everything online with, especially digital video, digital pictures and stuff like that. They look at it and go, wait a second. And they're kind of cynical. Whereas there are older generations that you can show them one of those AI-generated images of like people at a party. And they go, oh, look, a nice party. And they don't realize the weird extra teeth in the smile or seven fingers on the hand or something like that. They just, they just don't see it. I agree. And I think what's different is that typically, I mean, it's the, the still photo touch-up stuff's been around a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the, the deep fake in video that can actually portray action, animation of a person, because it can take that person's figure and essentially make it do anything, and it looks dang real in doing so. And you know we're going to see that. I also want to make a prediction here today that Joe Biden will drop out of contention as president, is for re-election as president, before the end of the year. I've noted doing some research on that. That's you know, an awfully short timetable. I know, but you know how big his campaign staff is? Seven. He has seven. This is the president supposedly running for re-election. Seven. And what are they doing? They're just parked and they're paying them. They're not doing squat. It's weird. It's weird. I think he's got par for the course for people around the Biden family. <laughs> it's true. Just show up and get a check. So what is your suggestion for the PERS system is a question on the ceasefire text line. I'll cover that when we come back. By the way, Mike Hurst, former U.S. attorney, joins middays at 11.05. And he and I are going to talk about the most recent Trump indictment. Also, in 1959, August 5th, 1959, little trivia, historical trivia, the first satellite images of Earth were captured. 1959. Wow. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We're in the Element Wealth Studio. 
The entire Supertalk Mississippi team will be at the Lloyd Ricks Building on the Mississippi State University campus this Friday as we bring awareness to CAST. That is an acronym which stands for Child Advocacy Studies Training. This is a nonprofit membership organization that supports and advocates on behalf of children's advocacy centers and multidisciplinary teams statewide. Also, if you don't vote, then you don't have a voice. Get on out there and vote tomorrow and bring your photo ID. We just heard a commercial from Transportation Commissioner Willie Simmons saying, go out and vote, bring your ID. you got to do that. By the way, Liz Warren says, voter oppression, suppression, still happening out there in these United States. She, uh, she made an impassioned speech on voting rights about this time last year, like an hour uh, and like, what are you talking about here, lady? She believes voter suppression occurs in states such as Mississippi, where one has to prove they're who they are with a photo ID. And so she went to Twitter to talk about how states such as Mississippi, she didn't name Mississippi, but was just denouncing and decrying her opinion, at least, that voter suppression is still going on. So I just tweeted a response to her saying, I challenge you to produce one person, just one, who's legally registered to vote wherever they live, wherever they reside, and who's been turned away or who's, whose right to vote is being suppressed. Just find one. Have you ever seen a person come forward and say, I tried to vote. They just wouldn't let me in, wouldn't let me do it. Now, I'm sure there are examples of people that uh, attempt to vote in states where you are not properly registered, perhaps. Maybe you have to produce a photo ID to prove your identity, and you're unable to do that. And then they may claim, I was suppressed, but I just hadn't seen it. Just one person, come forward. If you're listening out there and you've had an experience where you went to vote and you couldn't, you were turned away, Legitimately, legitimately. I don't mean you showed up at the wrong place to vote, because that could be a problem. No doubt about that. Maybe, and in Mississippi, right? Even if you're not registered, is that right? Or, no, it's not. It's it's if you you got to be registered. You got to be registered. You can sign an affidavit. Yeah, for some reason for, you don't have yeah, your, voter, your, ID. your voter ID. Yeah, or yeah. It's out of date or something like that, like you haven't renewed it. You can still cast your ballot. You can ballot. still cast your ballot. You just then have to go and show your ID and prove, yes, this is me, and then they tabulate the vote. But they won't turn you away. No. Right. So what is she talking about here, other than just trying to call attention to herself? That's all she cares about. She's talking about. out of her rear, but then again, that's the majority of the things she says come oh, out the wrong geez. end. So ridiculous. Also, a shout-out to my friend uh, Sharon Womack is a, uh, an older woman in the city of Brandon. It is her birthday. She, uh, I shout-out to her because she is a regular listener, often viewer, of uh, Middays, and we appreciate that. Uh, so, we have, um, we have a birthday for her today. Happy birthday, Sharon. The judicial redistricting, I wanted to cover that again, that occurs every 10 years in the state of Mississippi. 
And that is something that is taken up by the legislature. And this has become a really big polarizing issue, shall we say, in the state of Mississippi, certainly in Madison County. And, and there are two districts, right? There's a, a circuit court district, and there is a chancery court district. And in Madison and Rankin counties are combined to comprise one circuit court district, and that's really what we're talking about. And then Madison, Holmes, and Yazoo make up one chancery court, court district. So in Mississippi, chancery courts deal with disputes and cases involving equity, domestic matters, adoptions, custody disputes. I've seen foster children, have, having been foster parents, I've had to go before the judge before to deal with various matters. Uh, sanity hearings, wills, challenges to state laws, land records, those are the purview of the Chancery Court. And then you got the circuit courts, and those deal more with felony cases, civil cases of more than 200 bucks, appeals from justice to county courts, appeals from county board of supervisors, municipal authorities, and other tribunals. So a little bit different. So the concern folks would have is that if you combine, if you sever the present district of Madison and Rankin, and Madison would then be combined with, say, Holmes County to, uh, to, to comprise the two uh, counties, would comprise, pardon me, one circuit court uh, district. Well, there's concerns that you got Holmes County, which is largely Democrat. You got Madison County, which is fairly split, but mostly Republican. And you could end up with a Democrat DA and Democrat sort of favoring courts, etc. Maybe less business friendly, for example. More, uh, more about more intent on redistribution. I, I, I have described this before. My experience, uh, thank God, in my 33-year business experience, only three lawsuits, which is pretty amazing when you think about 33 years, three lawsuits, one a customer, (laughs) one a competitor, and one an ex-employee. And it depends on the court, but honestly, sometimes just at the 50,000-foot level, if you've got a, a matter that goes before a jury, a judge, it just like, well, let's see, the person over here's got more money than the person over there. I'm just going to take it out of their pocket and give it to them. The, the facts don't matter. That's what it's looked like. I'm generalizing. I know. I get it. And maybe it sounds a bit like hyperbole. But it just depends on the makeup of the jury, and there does seem to be this attitude that the courts exist in those kinds of disputes to just affect redistribution. Ben from Madison says the mayor of Madison and Jill Ford, Representative Jill Ford, who also represents the city of Madison, have been sounding the alarm regarding judicial redistricting. I think I got that right. Do I not, Representative Ford, if you're listening? Don't you also, I know you're my representative in Ridgeland, don't you also have a piece of the city of Madison? 
help me out with that. I still don't know if what they were hearing were very true, but of course, Representative Ford represents a big part of Madison County. She would have an interest in judicial redistricting, of course. And Ben also goes on to say he believes that the mayor has been privately telling everyone for a few weeks she would vote for McDaniel. Now, I have received, and, and by the way, the judicial redistricting process occurs, I may have said that already, every 10 years. It's an every 10-year process in the legislature. So uh, something else I wanted to pass on is that earlier this morning, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman shared a video that included him and the mayors of Ridgeland, Flora, and Gluckstadt. Those are three other incorporated municipalities in the county of Madison where they pledged their support for the lieutenant governor. And also, I'm informed that numerous other mayors across the state, I'll just give you a a sample of a few, Hattiesburg, Pascagoula, Ocean Springs, Gulfport, Long Beach, Bay St. Louis, Flora, etc., also support the lieutenant governor. So I'm curious, is there another municipal leader, is there another mayor in the state that has publicly pledged their support for Chris McDaniel. I'm just curious. I haven't seen any other than Mayor Mary. Both senators, Republican sheriffs, all but Jones County, also support Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. So we'll see how this uh, this race comes in. It, it will be incredibly interesting. We'll be glued to the results. I'm not sure. You said this last week, Ryan, and we may not know the results on election night. Right? If it's really close, it could take some time to get all the, the ballots uh, tabulated and the final numbers presented. We'll be watching, though. Michael in Starkville says, enjoying your show and watching from a laptop. I don't get to text often, but love your show. Your comment about most candidates saying same things is spot on. Hoping for large turnout tomorrow. Michael, Muse, and Starkville. Really appreciate the context there, Michael. Thanks so much for being a member of our audience. We are taking a break right here. Don't forget Mike Hurst, former U.S. Attorney, at 11.05. It's Monday. It's a two-hour show today. Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors at 12.05. Stay with us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio, so I just wanted to verify that uh, about the judicial redistricting process, when that occurs, and so I sent a note to Senator Bryce Wiggins from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, because I'm pretty sure he's on that Judiciary Committee, if I'm not mistaken, Rhino, uh, but I know he's been in the Senate a long time, he understands this kind of stuff, he's also an attorney. And he says that the Mississippi Constitution requires it to be done by the fifth year of, of, of after, I think it's supposed to be fifth year after, every decennial year, meaning the census. Okay. 
2024 allows any candidate to have a year to know what the districts would be. Okay, that makes sense. So we had a 2020 census. That means 2025 during the next term. We'll be taking that up in the legislature. Now, personally, I don't think that it would have a chance talking about severing the present uh, uh, circuit court uh, court district, which includes Madison and Rankin as a single district. This rumor about severing that and combining Madison with Holmes. That's that's what's at play here that's got the mayor of Madison upset. And it caused her to come out and pledge her support for Chris McDaniel because she believes that uh, the lieutenant governor supports such a move that would combine Madison with Holmes, changing the current situation, which is Madison and Rankin combined. It just feels a bit myopic for a statewide race. Yeah, I agree. Because it's half of the judiciary involved in a county that, I mean, what percentage of the voters in Madison actually have to deal with circuit court on a on enough basis for this to matter in their vote? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think the point there, if I'm not mistaken, if this is what you're trying to make here, is that people across the state may not be so concerned about the fate of the district in Madison ranking right. County. Yeah. It's just not I mean, even get a the lot people in Madison, how many of them have to deal with court on enough of a basis for it to be a big influence on their vote? That's why it's like, is this really that big a deal? You know, it's a good point you make, uh, Rhino, because just anecdotally in talking to some friends who have said, yeah, I heard that Mayor Mary is uh, is pledging her support, her endorsement, gives given her endorsement to Chris McDaniel. What's that all about? And I've explained what you said, and they said, why is that a problem? Literally. I, I think people struggle to try to, uh, I guess, conclude, well, why would combining Madison and Holmes be a problem relative to Madison and Rankin? I agree. And, of course, the McDaniel camp says, well, this would be bad for Madison. It would likely cause a decrease in property values is one of their talking points. Uh, it would make our streets less safe. It would be harder to get, I guess, convictions they would opine if we had a Democrat DA, for example, that the court's complexion would change. So um, I, I don't know. That's, that's, I'm just repeating here, passing on what the contention is. So, so Tallahatchie County votes with a touchscreen. Uh, I thought we had, trying to keep up with what's current here, I thought that we required paper ballots. Maybe it's not a requirement yet, but I know many counties have converted, actually received some funding, if I'm not mistaken, to replace some of the old infrastructure that was uh, just voting machines only, what's called, what do they call it, DRE? I think, direct uh, recording, I believe is what that's called. Uh, Direct Recording Electronic, D-R-E, the acronym. So these are, I believe, newer machines where those are used, but many counties, I think, if not most, have converted to paper. That's what I've seen. 
I believe. But I think that was a push after the 2020 election, was it not? Seems like it. So, Which the it, contention was during the 2020 election. Right. A lot, lot of folks had concerns about um, voting machines, lots of uh, allegations, including from President Trump, that the voting machines were not accurate and uh, were subject to manipulation of votes once they were cast. So we got, uh, we found out this morning, we are going to have Secretary of State Michael Watson will be on program, I believe tomorrow, if not mistaken, or is it the next day? I can't remember. Well, we'll I usually see. have the Secretary of State on Election Day That's to what get I an thought. update on That's what I thought. if there's been any hiccups, if anybody didn't get the ballots delivered, or if someplace didn't get opened up in time, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's 2022, the Mississippi Voting Voting Modernization Act. Yeah, I thought it came after 2020. 22. You're right. And so we'll dig into that with the Secretary. But get out and vote tomorrow. Don't forget, Mike Hurst, U.S. Attorney, former U.S. Attorney, coming up next. And I will get to the question about PERS later on in the program, a question that we asked. Well, hey, what should we do about that? Right now, though, it's time for Fox News and uh, Super Talk News. Coming right back with Mr. Hurst. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We are live in the Element Well studio. It's Monday. It's the first day of the week. We're going to the polls tomorrow. We're going to find out who prevails in the primaries. But in the meantime, we're going to turn our attention to the national scene. That's why we brought in Mike Hurst, former U.S. attorney. Mike, always good to see you, sir. Hey, good morning, Gerard. Thanks for having me. So what a uh, a web of legal issues <laughs> the former president has got himself wrapped up in. Yeah, you guys might need a full-time legal <laughs> lawyer on staff here. Golly. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. We've never obviously we've never seen anything no one has ever seen anything like this in the history of America. Well, would you ever think that we would be witnessing a candidate for president likely to be involved in multiple lawsuits concurrently while he's campaigning. I, I think you could see a, a candidate for president be involved in multiple lawsuits. I don't think that would be unusual. What I think is unusual is a former president running for re-election indicted in three separate crimes. Okay. And that's what we have here. You have you got crimes relating to, you know, quote unquote hush money payments up in New York. You got crimes related to confidential documents uh, not being turned over down in Florida. And now you have uh, crimes relating to what has been characterized as, you know, defrauding the United States or trying to overturn the twenty twenty election with the indictment in DC. So yeah, this wow. is pretty incredible. And and you know, there's still fodder, there's still talk out there that the uh, Georgia district attorney may uh indict down in the state of Georgia on similar charges. That so, hasn't happened yet. That's yeah, coming, though, that's, right? Well, that's that's the chatter. That's the chatter. Okay. But it's been chatter for a while. It's been chatter for a while, but it's it seems like the chatter is getting louder or more frequent. And, um, you know, the Man. press the press doesn't know, but the press is reporting over the next few weeks that could, get, that could come down from the state of Georgia. Yeah. 
No doubt about it. So the, the federal charges against the president, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct official proceeding, obstruction of official proceeding, conspiracy against rights. Let me start with the, the fourth point there, Mike. Yeah. That seems like a stretch there, because what, what's the allegation there? Yeah, the allegation is that through his conduct, through the president's conduct, after the election in November of 2020 up until January 6th, or even after, yeah. um, for 42 pages, the indictment talks about all the things that he did to say the election was stolen from him. And in that fourth charge you mentioned, um, 18, Section 241, um, the charge is all that he did was to deprive someone of their right to vote or that their right would be count, their right, their vote would be counted. Now, a little history lesson, that, that was actually passed after the Civil War to try to protect those um, uh, African Americans who were trying to be, who were being disfranchised, disenfranchised by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. That is the history of that section. Okay. okay. And so to th- for that to be used in this context, I, I think it's going to be a hard, hard um, statute and a hard crime to prove in, in this context. Now, if you read this indictment, the indictment you know, is 45 pages. Like I said, 42 of those 45 pages relate just to conspiracy to defraud the United States. And it reads like Benny Thompson and the January 6th committee wrote the indictment. And look, you can disagree, and I do disagree. I, I do not think the president um, was right. To state all these things, saying that you know the fraud, the election was fraudulent, it was stolen from him. I mean, the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, uh, called every single one of the United States attorneys when I served under him, and he told us to go out and look for this information, look for evidence, look for violations of our election laws. And as Attorney General Barr has stated multiple times since then, you know there wasn't election fraud sufficient to overturn the election. There just wasn't. Now, every every election has fraud, but there, in this case, there was not fraud sufficient to overturn the election. And the president has not accepted that. He, will, he refuses to accept that. Still to this day. But and, the and question is, is that a crime? And right. I don't think it is a crime. Right. I, I think, as, as they pointed out in the indictment, you can you – can, you, we do have First Amendment – freedoms we we can we can even say we can say stupid stuff i mean you get a, you get a lot of that here on the on sure. the calls but you sure. can you can even lie you can sure. even lie and you know he the, i think the president here put out false statements the election was stolen no doubt about it but for for that to be a crime i think that's going to be a stretch that's going to be hard for for the uh for the federal government to prove so bill barr to your point this past weekend was on Face the Nation at CBS, uh, I picked up on this uh, last night, and said that the latest indictment is, quote, a challenging case, also said it's legitimate. So mm-hmm. he, he, of course, he was right in the middle of that, as you know, and, and what I think he states is that attorneys were giving him bad advice, mm-hmm. and he was acting on that. And then there were others in his inner circle, as you know, that were telling him, Mr. President, you, you lost. You lost legitimately. And he wouldn't accept that. And, of course, he asked Mike Pence, send the electoral votes back to the states. And Mike said he wouldn't do that. That he did, uh, And he asked him to, to do some other things, take some other action that, that Mr. Pence said, no, I, I don't have the power to do that. Now Pence is calling out Trump saying he's not fit mm. for re-election. Mm. He's actually gone that far. 
And when he set up his campaign, this is an interesting bit of trivia, when Mr. Pence set his campaign up, the Wi-Fi password (laughs) in his campaign office was hashtag kept his oath. Hmm. That's what they set up, which was pretty clear that he expected that uh, Donald Trump would attack him on his refusal to send the electoral votes back to the state. But you're right, though, right? Our, our, our First Amendment and our Constitution says you can lie, honestly. That's not against the law. Unless, I guess, you're lying well, to Congress, right? <laughs> or if you're, if you're lying to an FBI agent. Okay, or okay. You know, There are crimes of lying. But okay. in this case, it's the charge is conspiracy to defraud the, the federal government. Okay. And the way that the Supreme Court traditionally has defined defraud, that word defraud in, as it relates to federal crimes, is the, the taking of property or the taking of money from someone else. You know, you know Jeffrey Skilling, you may remember that oh, name yeah. from the Enron. I mean, that, that case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court in the in – the, um, context of this federal crime called honest services. You know, the American people are entitled to honest services from their public officials. And in that case, the Supreme Court said defrauding, fraud in this context in federal crimes has to mean the taking of property or money from someone else. Oh, okay. And so that's a big question as if you're going to stretch 371, which is the conspiracy statute on federal crimes, to defrauding the United States, you know, there's a lot of Supreme Court precedent out there that says that's going to be a tough road to hoe yep. for, the, for the prosecutor in this case. So the prosecutors allege that Mr. Trump knowingly pushed false claims. Did, does that make a difference? It, absolutely. That's the that's going to be the key for, for a lot of this is the criminal intent. You know, if the president can prove that he legitimately thought, as you mentioned, yeah. based upon information you received from lawyers, information you received from political consultants, that the election was, in fact, stolen, that it was fraudulent, you know, he's, he's going to have a pretty good defense because he that would prevent him from having criminal intent. I see. The problem he has is his attorney general, Bill Barr, was telling him, Mr. President, the you, election was not stolen. You lost. You right. lost. Yeah. And so you've got competing claims between those who he had put in power, like the attorney general had told him the election was not stolen, versus those in his inner circle, uh, some of the private attorneys who were saying, no, this was stolen and we need to fight it. Isn't that similar to the legal standard for libel and, stan- and uh, slander that the person engaged in such activity has to absolutely know? That what they're telling is untrue. I, I see. There is could... there is there is some similarities there. There okay. are some similarities okay. there, and it's it's the same in in all criminal statutes that um, you know w- prosecutors have to prove intent. They have to prove intent, okay. and and I would say even in the tax. Uh, criminal statutes, there's even a higher standard, which has to, is willfulness. You have to have known the law, and intentionally violated the law to to rise to the level of evasion that's tax, right that's exactly which right which is criminal that's exactly tax right evasion. That, that makes yep. sense but if the president just wanted to run around and say hey the election was stolen i mean it's not a crime right, right? well and thinking about it in this context um you, you may remember the 2000 presidential election yeah you may remember that was contested yeah. a little bit yeah yeah uh, you know Supreme Court. Uh, that's what i'm saying so if if al gore objected to that election saying it was stolen and you know it should be overturned it does that mean we need to go prosecute Al Gore? 
No. Right. We we they did it the right way. They went to the courts. The courts went up to Supreme Court. Supreme Court decided it. Well, whichever side you're on, that's the right process to do this by. Yeah. And in every situation that I'm aware of where the president where President Trump has challenged these votes, the election, whatever, in court, he's lost. So, you know, wow. but but again, I don't think in this context, I think the prosecutor is going to have a real difficult time proving a crime was committed, even though you may disagree with what he's he's done over the last two years. Yeah, totally get it. We got Mike Hurst, former U.S. attorney in the Element Well studio. We're talking about uh, the various cases against Donald Trump. He's a defendant in a couple of them right now. Right? We're coming right back with more. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. We are back in the Element Well studio. We've got Mike Hurst, former U.S. attorney. Always appreciate him coming in and unraveling all these legal <laughs> technicalities. And when you've got a former president that's been indicted, uh, that just kind of uh, increases the focus Absolutely. On, our, on our judicial and legal systems. So there are many who believe he can't get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., which, like, voted 98% for Mr. Biden in the last cycle, an, an Obama-appointed judge, correct? Right. Which uh, has a history. Uh, of course, the special prosecutor has a history as well, which would not be favorable for Mr. Trump. But one thing I asked you about on the break was their calls for televising uh, the trial, which would be maybe the largest television event in the history of the world, if you think <laughs> about it. Uh, there would be so much interest there. Okay, so I looked it up asked you about this. Federal rules forbid, quote, the taking of photographs in the courtroom during judicial proceedings or the broadcasting of judicial proceedings from the courtroom. So would this be in federal cases, Mike? Because we do see video and photographs no, it, in non-federal yeah, cases. No, that's definitely in federal cases. Okay. If you if you remember, you know, United States Supreme Court has no video right. whatsoever. You right. can listen to the audio, and and I think I I do believe it's at the discretion of each individual United States district judge. But I can't recall ever a federal criminal case yeah. being televised, and, yeah. and I don't think they're going to even even as monumental as these cases are, and as big as it would be for the country. I just don't think a federal judge is going to allow that to happen because it starts starts a precedent. So I was a little surprised that the Democrats are have sent a letter. Uh, 30, 38 congressional Democrats called on the Judicial Conference to televise the trial. 
So I'm not sure if the Judicial Conference, they said that's the national policy-making body for federal courts. Right, that's okay? the the, um, the the group that all the judges are members of and kind of writes the policy, advocates for their federal judges, you know, pay increases, benefits, that that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, you got to remember, federal judge is appointed for a lifetime. Right. I can't imagine 37 elected officials sending a letter is going to sway a federal judge one way or the other. So. And, and by the way, this Judicial Conference... Uh, I'm reading, is administered, is led by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts. Exactly. Administrative Office of Courts is what it's called. Wow. And so their letter said, uh, requested to explicitly authorize the broadcasting of court proceedings in the cases of the United States of America versus Donald J. Trump. Yeah. What a circus. It's it's not. I I just... I firmly believe that's never going to happen. You'll have reporters in there um, reporting almost almost in real time as much as they can. They're not allowed to take, you know, um, telephones or com- you know some some are allowed to take computers in, but uh, generally it's it's prohibited any type of communication while you're in the federal courthouse. All right, so let's talk about Trump as a defendant, Mike. What what can he say and not say? You know, he he went out uh, to his Truth Social platform and in all caps, basically said, if you come after me, I'm coming after you sort yeah. of deal. I mean, is that... I can tell you, as a um, as someone who has clients, you pray that they do not come out on social media, <laughs> and, and especially during case, and in this case, multiple indictments, and say anything. But um, as we all know over the last few years in, in watching the Trump presidency, no one, no one has control of President Trump. That's right. one reason he's so popular. But at the same time, when you're in these special situations where you've been indicted, it's probably to your advantage to say as little as possible. And in this case, he's not following that advice at all. In all caps, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Now, I, I sort of reason that perhaps he's directing this at his uh, presidential foes in the Republican primary, specifically Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis, both of whom have come out and, and really been critical of the president and his questioning of the 2020 results and essentially saying he's really not fit for re-election. I, I think of course, de- they're running against Right. Him. I think it depends on your perspective. I would imagine our Democratic friends would think they're he's saying this to Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, or Merrick <laughs> right. Garland, sure. the attorney general, or Joe Biden. So, uh, But again, it, it goes back to the First Amendment. The okay. First Amendment. This is this is a bedrock principle that we as Americans rely upon. We can say almost anything we want if we're not violating those few areas of you know again inciting riots or or, or you know yelling fire in a, a movie theater. I mean, but this is this is how we operate. This is how we're free as a society. You can go and say these kinds of crazy things, and you should be protected. I've seen Democrats also upset that we didn't get mug shots of the president. How does that work? What are the requirements there? Well, you know, here the <laughs> the former president is a, a special defendant in the sense that he has and will always have Secret Service protection. So 
it's going to be very difficult for any law enforcement officer to put their hands on the president because he is protected by the Secret Service. Now, uh, you know, in most cases like this, um, you know, if it's a white-collar defendant, you know, you're, the lawyer arranges with the prosecutor for that individual to come in, meet with, you know, probation office, pretrial services, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, I completely understand that the Democrats wanted a mugshot. That would, that would definitely <laughs> help in their political ads. So the president's got... Uh, presently, he's got the documents case in Florida. And, and, and frankly, that's the most – if I were his attorney, that would be the most concerning case. Uh, the, the hush money case up in New York is, is, a, is a stretch. It's legal theory. The indictment in D.C. relating to the stolen election is, is a stretch. It's a legal theory. The document case is pretty darn solid. I mean, I, I, it's – if you look at that indictment, they recount how they have – actual audio recording of the president showing individuals confidential information and verifying, telling them, you shouldn't be looking at this. This is confidential, you know? I mean, that's pretty damning. Uh, And not only do you have that, but you have um, his former attorneys having testified to the grand jury in that case where the president had told them, you know, maybe that document needs to disappear. Maybe you need to just pluck that out of what you turn over to the FBI. And him actually directing his aide-de-camp, his body man, to move documents before attorneys, his attorneys come over and review them to be turned over. I mean, this, this indictment, if, 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 the, if you rank these indictments, the Florida indictment is – is the is the worst one for the president because the the evidence is so damning. And most recently, it's been revealed that there's evidence that he instructed a worker uh, to destroy video evidence, right, of the them moving the documents around. Well, and that worker um, is again noted in the indictment itself. That worker took photographs of the boxes and boxes and boxes of documents. Again, you know, you've got to look inside the box to see if there's any classified sure. national security. But that was confirmed. Once yeah. the FBI went there and seized the documents pursuant to a valid search warrant, but he took photographs, sent it to other employees of Trump saying, we need to move these, the, the president wants us to move these from the, you know, uh, you know, utility room to the bathroom to his place up in New Jersey. I mean, it, it was insane because they were being instructed to move these documents in in um, in retali- not retaliation um, after the president had been approached by the FBI and approached by the grand jury to turn over these documents. I got you. And that's you know that's just that's that's obstruction of justice. That's so, obstruction of the grand jury proceedings. Is this is this also in federal court? It is. Okay. Yeah. So when when I mean that's it's been a while since we had that indictment. When when will we see a trial? I think they're. I haven't kept up with where they are in the process, but I know both parties were going back and forth as to when that trial would occur. But, I mean, it's possible he could be traveling between New York, Washington, and Florida, right? That's right. At the same time, dealing with uh, being a defendant in three different cases. And then we got the Georgia thing coming up. That's right. While he's running for president. Right. And, you know, I I don't really anticipate the two federal cases to go before 2024. And I just say that because there are a lot of documents involved. Anytime a defendant needs more time to review documents, to put his defense together, there's a lot of leeway that is given the defense because you don't want them to come back and say, hey, you know, I was pressured. I didn't have enough time to put on a defense. I mean, those are all reversible errors. And so mm-hmm. the judge is going to give a lot of leeway, not not unlimited leeway, but a lot of leeway to defense counsel to be able to do that, despite the prosecutors wanting to move to prosecute these quickly. As you indicated, we, we discussed him going to Truth Social. If you go after me, I'm coming after you. 
Uh, we're likely to see a lot more uh, uh, remarks from the president out on his social media platform. Is that permissible to use in the in the cases? I mean, will the other side look at that and try to twist that around to, in a damning way against well, him? Specifically for that statement, the other side would have to say this is somehow relevant to their case, and I think they're going to have a, a tough time doing that because it's so generic. I got you. And he's and as you stated, he's in the middle of a campaign. This could absolutely be directed to his campaign. Um, Competitors, but if he we got a couple seconds here, but it, but if he said something like that and included the name, for Ab- example, the judge, yeah. <laughs> that's a problem, right? Yeah, that's a huge problem. That's a huge that that oh, that could be something where he is locked down and on house arrest at that point if he is threatening any type of uh, official proceedings or federal officials. Appreciate it, Mike. Absolutely. Yep, Mike Hurst, former U.S. Attorney, great analysis of the Trump indictment and what we can expect coming right back in on middays, half an hour left. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is a middays. Well, appreciate uh, Mike Hurst coming in and unraveling all of those details for us. That uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And just a reminder: if the president, even if he's convicted, still eligible to be a candidate for president. There's uh, nothing. Very simple requirements. Got to be over 35, naturalized citizen, and I think a resident for 14 years. Isn't that the number? 14? Which comes to mind. Something like but that. It, but that's it. There's some residential requirement. I can't remember the exact number of years. Which I is basically say a holdover from the earliest elections. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so there's nothing in the Constitution that bars an individual from seeking the office of presidency because they have a felony on their record. I mean, Tiger King is currently sitting in a federal prison and running for president as an independent. <laughs> that is true. Oh, gosh. Yeah, 14 years, 35, natural-born citizen. That's pretty much it. That just would be crazy. Now, something that has been interesting is to watch... Mr. Trump's poll numbers actually go up. I mean, he has derived additional support, energized his base. The more they they go after him and levy charges against him, it seems like the more popular he becomes. That's very interesting, in my view. Hmm. I know there people chime in and point out it's natural-born citizen, not naturalized. Right, that's absolutely right. Thank you for for I, I do think I said natural born though when I mentioned it. Maybe not, I did. If I did, I apologize. I do understand the difference, and I I appreciate that. Um. So, and that's why there was questions forever about Barack Obama's legitimacy and qualifications. Right, many maintained that 
he was not a natural-born citizen. And you, you saw the birth certificates going all over the place, remember that? And I, you got to wonder, though, okay, it's not going to change. The guy's going to, he's going to remain in office. If you have an issue with that, mount a, a lawsuit. I mean, that's really your option. And such lawsuits were attempted, at least, with respect to the 2020 election, to um, which maintained that fraud occurred, voting irregularity. Lots of allegations there, right? But none of them ever rose to the level of getting through the courts and making any difference. The, uh, the popular vote, of course, is not how we elect the president in the United States. It is elected based on the Electoral College, and we're dangerously close to losing that. And if that were to happen, I'm not sure another Republican could ever get elected, just based on the, the complexion of the country. Not in the short term, at least. It's going to take some work. And I think the more we dwell on election irregularity in 2020, the less we are focused on and investing our energy in persuading the next crop of voters uh, to our worldview, to our, our beliefs, to our values. That's where we ought to be focused, in my view. And I, and I also believe that Mr. Trump's obsession with and dwelling on the 2020 election is actually not in his best interest to win in 24 if he's the ultimate nominee as a Republican because the path to winning the presidency goes through a few dozen counties that can go either way and to a great extent it's it's so-called independent voters in those counties that don't necessarily vote straight party, but rather vote for uh, the candidate that appeals to them the most. And they could go either way. Let's see, the last time I think a Republican won a majority of the popular vote, George H.W. Bush, as I recall, in 88. I want to say W won in 04. Remember, that was on the heels of 9-11. You had kind of a surge of patriotism, and most folks were happy with the way he handled that. And then I guess you'd have to go back to Ronald Reagan to see that. And I know a lot of people have an issue with that. Matt Westpoint says, not stolen, 81 million votes for Joe, really? Yeah, I think, Matt, you got to think about the 2020 uh, before you saw Joe uh, performing as president. And at that point, I think a lot of people were fed up with uh, Mr. Trump. They were, it, the COVID stuff had a big effect on that. There's no doubt about it. And I think also he had, I think he kind of lost the support of the few people in 16 that got him elected. I, I say few because if you go back and look at the the margins in the states which he carried, which essentially propelled him into the White House over Hillary Clinton, whom I think is the worst candidate in the history of the country. And he barely beat her and lost the popular vote to her. And nobody said a word about so-called election fraud. How in the world 
what was it, three and a half million people, I think, more voted for Hillary than Donald Trump. What are they thinking? It's, uh, it's crazy to think about two candidates, though, who appear today to be the front run- runners and the, the odds-on favorites to represent their parties, involved in all these legal deals. The case against Joe Biden, I think it's pretty clear that he was involved in his son's business deals, that he was enriching his, himself and his family by peddling influence. That's treason, essentially. Man, oh man. Ben from Madison says, I agree with what you said in the first segment. We need to get away from the rigged elections nonsense. I worry if Trump loses again, he'll just act the same, exact same way. I'll take it a step further, Ben. The outcome tomorrow in our most contested races on the Republican side, lieutenant governor, might we hear that? Let's say if Mr. Hoseman prevails, might we hear? I'm already seeing a little bit of it, Rhino. Might we hear that, oh, well, they won because they persuaded Democrats to vote in the Republican primary. Remember, in Mississippi, we do not register a party when we register to vote. We don't associate ourselves with a party. We don't mark that. Some states, they do. We don't hear and a person is permitted to vote in whichever primary they choose, our law, however, does stipulate that if you vote in a party's primary, and should any of those races proceed to advance to a runoff, you cannot vote in the other party's runoff. You must vote in the runoff that corresponds with the primary. It does, however, say, our law, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, Rhino, that you you if you vote in a particular party's primary, you must have intent to support that party, that candidate, if, if you will, in the general. So you can't – but, I mean, that's subjective, and there's no check on that because you don't associate with a party. But in general, it says, yeah, if you're going to vote in a primary, pretty much you've got to be uh, in that party's camp when it comes to the general. I'm not sure why we even have that language, honestly. It doesn't really have any teeth in it. We don't verify. Because the general, they're, you're, you're past the party stuff. So, well, I voted in the Republican primary. I'm a Democrat. Now I'm voting in the general, and I'm voting Democrat. I mean, you're free to do that. But the law basically makes some statement to that effect. Another great example of how this is another way that Dems trying to take Trump down, says Malcolm from Tishomingo County, also asked the question, does Mr. Hoseman support Trump? I don't know what uh, his position is and if he's announced any support for any presidential candidate at this point. Didn't he have a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago? He did. He did uh, do that. That was a couple months ago, right? Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, where where he stands on that, uh, Malcolm? Just a, a question: Is that kind of a a requirement for you that whomever you support, let's say in this case for lieutenant governor, they must be a supporter of Donald Trump? Let me know. Can a sitting president not declassify information? Yes 
or no, they can. But what Mr. Hurst was talking about, that's Paul's appliance repair, was that that, that document that um, he was brandishing, he even said in the video, Paul, yeah, I should have declassified this. Remember that, Rhino? He's, he's actually said that, kind of semi-joked about it. And he said, you know, this is a like a plan that... I think it was Milley, Joint Chiefs of Staff, gave him said it was like a war plan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I should have declassified this, but I didn't. That gets a little complicated. Maybe Mike's right. That'll be the big one. Final segment of Middays on this Monday, Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors at 12.05. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. It is the final segment of Middays. Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors, up after the noon break. Back to the PERS issue. Jerry in Leesburg says, Gerard, if the state had paid the state employees more what they were worth at the time, maybe the incentive for PERS wouldn't need to have been in existence. Well, uh, this is the first thing I'd say, uh, Jerry, anytime someone says pay them what they're worth, the market determines what a person's worth. Not the state government, not the HR department of a private company, the market. You don't pay the right wages and have the correct compensation benefit package, you don't get workers. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is the pension benefits and benefits in general in public sector employment have always been the differentiator relative to folks that are thinking about private sector employment. That's always been the draw, as long as I can remember. Because in general, the public sector pays less than the private sector. But you typically don't have to work as many years, and you're also building up this this uh, public uh, defined benefit plan retirement that pays you for life that you can't find in general in the private sector. So that's that's the deal there. Uh, they certainly converted. Uh, Jerry, to, to uh, a system that would be more akin to the private sector, which means you would not have a defined benefit plan. You'd have a defined contribution plan like the typical private sector 401k plan, Roth IRA. You pay into it. Your employer pays a little into it as well. And when you retire, whatever's in there, that's how much you got. You spend it all, you're done. That's not the way the public sector works. There is no such thing. The benefits carry on for life. What do we do about it? That was a question earlier I promised I'd get to. Again, three options. you got to pay more into it, pay less out of it, or a combination of the two. How you achieve that? That is a long, complex undertaking. But that's where we are. Now, some things that you could do that, that would achieve that is you could create a new tier. We already have, I think, four, if I'm not mistaken. What does that mean? People coming into the system or who have just been recently employed in, in the system. I mean, you could structure it any way you want. They would have a completely different retirement plan. Their contributions may be different, and their benefits may be different when they ultimately retire so as to, to make the numbers work better. That, that would be the typical approach. You could certainly increase the employee 
contribution. You could alter the way the so-called 13th check is computed, which costs a lot of money. It's supposed to be uh, a way to deal with the rising cost of living, an inflation protector, if you will. However, it doesn't. Even if we had negative inflation, that 13th check still goes up. There's a, there's a, a, a range of years in there where it's just 3% of your benefits, and then there's another range where it's 3% compounded. And, it, and again, regardless of inflation, there's no triggers for inflation. Unlike Social Security, where the COLA, the cost of living raise, is in fact based on the prior year's inflation. Like I think this year was 8.3% raise based on inflation last year. The so-called 13th check, supplemental check in Mississippi, it's not based on inflation. It was just an estimate, 3% and then 3% compounded. That was, that was a, a nicety, honestly, a great perk for PERS, but it's it's a financial burden now. It's a financial problem. As an example, Ida Mae Fuller of just what is wrong with defined uh, benefit plans, she was the first, the first beneficiary of Social Security. She paid in $24.75 in three years. $24.75. Her initial monthly check was $22.54. That was 1936, I believe. She lived a long time, much longer than expected. She collected $22,888.92, having paid in $24.75. I can't give a better example or illustration of what the problem is with defined benefit plans. She died at age 100 in 1975. Think about that. A Vermont school teacher and legal secretary, the very first, lived to be 100. So you see what the problem fundamentally is. I would love to vote for Delbert, but if I do, I cannot vote for my local offices. Wish we could fix this, says Rusty. It's primaries. They're operated by the parties. Unfortunately, uh, let's see, I uh, wouldn't trust McDaniel with redistricting. He'll say anything to get your vote. He's the same guy that said he would take care of the state income tax, says Dan in Hattiesburg. Well, I'm not sure when he made the commitment, Dan, to eliminate the state income tax. I have seen his uh, campaign promotions of late indicating he does support that. But again, the devil's in the details, as the saying goes. Does that mean eliminate it day one to go into effect the first year he's in office? Does that mean eliminating it over an extended period of time? We went into that to, in great lengths this past Friday on the show, and we'll, we'll talk some more about it tomorrow as well. Eric in Philadelphia, Delbert Hoseman is fair and respected by Republicans and Democrats just like Mississippi great Sonny Montgomery. I'm voting for Hoseman. We appreciate all the engagement today. We're out of here today, and we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.